Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good? You're looking like the same old people that were here last year. <laughs> well, we'll try to work on that this year, huh? Hey, do you ever notice how words can be very confusing at times? And um, one of the things that uh, stands out, there's a, a story that I heard recently that um, kind of illustrates this point. There were a couple of friends, and they were driving through Texas. They were college buddies, and they were on their way to somewhere. And uh, they were driving along, and they, they noticed a road sign. And uh, the sign said, Mexia, 28 miles. And uh, they got in this big argument about whether it was actually pronounced Mexia or not. And the one guy said, well, it's not Mexia. I mean, you, you must not be from around here because the X is silent, and it's Mejia. And the other guy's looking and saying, it's not Mejia, because if it was Mejia, there'd be an H-I or there'd be double L's that are silent. And it's not Mejia, it's Mexia. And so for the next 30 minutes, they get this big argument about whether it's Mejia or Mexia. So it was about lunchtime, and they got into town, they pulled into a place to eat. And uh, as they were up ordering their food, they asked the guy who was working. Their guy said, look, can you s settle this argument for me? Because uh, we've been arguing about it now for the last half hour. I'm sick of arguing it. And he said, well, sure, what is it? He goes, can you tell us nice and slowly where we are? And the guy goes, well, sure, you're in Burger King. <laughs> this kind of illustrates that, you know, sometimes words can get kind of confusing. And the interesting thing is that, you know, words actually do mean something. Uh, whether we understand that or know that or not, it's interesting. I've, I've been reading a couple books, and one of the chapters was words mean something, and, and you never really think about it because we live in a society, or at least our culture has gotten to the point where it really doesn't matter what we say. Uh, you can say anything because our words don't really mean anything. And I was listening to an interview last night of some people from Wisconsin, and uh, they were talking about, well, where, where we're from in Wisconsin because they were having a problem getting Rose Bowl tickets. Uh, and they said, well, we're, we're from in Wisconsin. If you say you have a ticket for me, you have a ticket for me. I mean, well, how silly that is to think that, you know, that people actually live that way. Huh? Uh, and, and the point they were trying to make was that, you know, we were told we had a ticket. And, you know, and it's really disappointing and it's discouraging many times to, to have been on the receiving end of such a conversation and to identify with what they were talking about. And that is that we need to understand or recognize that what we say, when we say something, that it means something. And it still does, and it always will. And uh, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but it was something that, that uh, stood out in my mind, because words do mean something. And I want to read you a couple of quotes. Uh, this is an anonymous essay that was written that several of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. But these, these words mean something. It says, 19 long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever been built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Wilbur Smith, a respected Bible scholar of a previous generation, said this. He says, the latest edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica gives 20,000 words to this person, Jesus, and does not even hint that he did not exist. More words, by the way, than are given to Aristotle, Alexander, Cicero, Julius Caesar, or even Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte said this. He says, I know men 
And I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and whoever else in the world there is, there is no possible term of comparison. Those are impressive words. And those are just a few of literally thousands of quotations that I could have picked from a number of sources to be able to demonstrate the point that I'm trying to make. And that is that words mean something. Words uh, need to be taken into consideration. Jesus is unique. Jesus is awesome. There, there's words hardly even do justice to what we could say. And uh, that was interesting because what I was curious and what we're going to talk about is how did Jesus perceive himself? What did he have to say about himself, about his person, about his inner man, about who he was? What were the words that he used to describe himself? Because those words mean something. And he has something to say about himself, but it's interesting that what he has to say about himself is so different than what we say about one another. Or what we say about, for example, speakers. I get things all the time, you know, with the kind of work that I do. I get uh, seminars and brochures and, you know, and, and things to try to encourage people to go to different things. And, you know, here's this speaker. Here's a brochure. Here's this, a phenomenal individual. He's in great demand around the world. Today's most sought-after speaker. Stirring, motivating, exceptional. You read these things and you kind of go, wow. I've, I've spoken to places and they've introduced me and by the time they're done with the introduction, I'm listening to this introduction and I'm thinking, oh man, they got somebody to take my place. I'm looking around and, and you start to go, what in the world? I mean, it's like this is the kind of hype that, you know, the world that we live in, we're all hyped up, you know. We want to get speakers to come and speak at our church that have a name that we can hype and promote so people will come and listen. Stirring, motivating, brilliant, oh, sought after. Don't miss it. If you miss it, you miss it. And you kind of, after a while, you just kind of go, what, what's wrong with us? You know what I mean? Don't you get that point? Just, what's, what's the matter with us? We always have to have some reason to, to listen. And it has to be something different. But when you think about it, there's nothing different about it. Everybody's brilliant, scholarly, intellectual, energetic, exciting, uh, has charisma, you know, is phenomenal. Don't miss. Come see. Be there. It'll change your life. Uh, what, what, what do you want to see a brochure say? This is going to be the worst thing you ever went to in your life. But, but you know what? We just feel like we have to put it on. We do it once a year. So uh, come and put yourself sound asleep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what, what is, uh, that, that's the kind of thing. But you know what? It's like, and, and I, here, here's, I guess, the, the thing that's really has kind of driven this home. Here's, here's Jesus as he describes himself. Come listen to me. I am exceptional. I am highly motivated. I'm phenomenal. I'm tremendous. I'm exciting. I'm exhilarating. And he is. But that's not what he says about himself. In Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Man, we live in a world of hype and braggadocia. Muhammad Ali, self-proclaimed, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I, you know, in the work that I do with professional athletes, it's amazing because you got guys talking trash all the time and you hear this, oh man, I'm the baddest. I'm a bad man. 
I'm, I'm the baddest, I'm the greatest, I'm the fastest, I'm the quickest, I'm this, I'm that. And it's like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that goes on all over the place. And yet here's Jesus and he takes it and he says, you know what? He uses two words to describe himself. Two terms. He doesn't say, oh man, you know, that's like a good quick kick start in the morning to get you going, huh? Some of you need coffee. I'll just put this on you and you don't need that anymore. You know, this... Let me change this a little bit there. Okay. This is the only place in the Bible that I know of where Jesus describes himself, his inner man, who he is as a person. He doesn't say I'm phenomenal and great. He doesn't say I'm sought after, a highly motivated speaker. He doesn't say I'm wise and powerful or all-knowing and absolute deity and I'm holy and eternal, even though he is. He's all of those things. Don't misunderstand me because some of you go, oh, no, he is all of those things. But that's not his view of himself. He says two things. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle and I am humble. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. If you recall a few weeks ago, <laughs> which is a stretch I know, but <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a shot anyway. A few weeks ago when we were studying Matthew chapter 5, we, we learned what it meant to be gentle. It was meek. Meekness or gentleness is strength and power under control. Jesus is God. He's all-powerful. And yet he's under control. His strength under control was used of a wild stallion that was tamed and was now under control and was used for something productive. Jesus says, I am gentle. That's the word he uses for himself. I am gentle. He also says, I am humble. And the word means to be lowly. And, and uh, the word picture is somebody who's stooping over. The word picture is one of a servant, which is what ties into what we'll discuss. Probably the, the, the most vivid illustration of this that I have seen recently in my own life was uh, when we were back in Alabama and I was uh, participating in a, in a friend of ours' wedding. I mentioned to you this once, but hadn't mentioned this portion of it. At this particular wedding, it was out on an old southern plantation out in the middle of nowhere, and the house was probably 125 to 130 years old. And it was a typical, stereotypical type of southern mansion, plantation, whatever, however you want to picture it. But the wedding was outside, and uh, the way that it was set up, they had a big lawn that kind of flowed down the side of the hill, and at the bottom of the hill, they had built a little stage uh, with a gazebo type thing around it, and then all the chairs were kind of feathered up along the hill. And so there was a walkway that came down that made it perfect for everyone that was there to see everything that was going on. Well, about probably 30 Five minutes to 45 minutes before the wedding, it was a nasty southern thunderstorm. And this has been, and they had been planning this wedding, and they'd been working in the yard for three weeks getting this thing ready, and it hadn't rained at all. About an hour before the wedding, it starts getting ominous, and then you get everybody standing outside telling you whether it's going to rain or not rain. And that's always a fun conversation, no matter where you are in the world. And they're saying, if you can see this mountain, it's going to rain. If you don't see this mountain, it's not going to rain. If you see it, it's going to blow this way. It's going to go that way. And they, and all, you know, all the, the weather geniuses got together, and we were standing there listening to all this. And the groom was there, and it was like, well, when it started to rain, we knew who was right. 
So as it was pouring down rain, and it was raining hard, and it was raining hard for about 45 minutes, and we kept moving the wedding back, we kept moving it back, and finally it, it, it let up enough that we said, we, we just got to do this, because they had probably 350 or 400 people there, and they had a contingency plan of a church down the street, and by the time you load everybody in a car and drive somewhere, it was like the wedding that would never end. And uh, so they said, well, th this we'll go ahead and do it. So anyway, we go to do it. And, uh, and the bride comes walking down, as she's, she's about to come walking down this lawn, it's muddy. I mean, it's muddy. So, no, you're not guessing right. <laughs> I, I know you all going, oh, I know what you're thinking, but that's not what happened. So what happened was it, was, it was muddy. And so one of the gals that worked for the family, one of the servants that worked for the family, saw this, understood what was going on, and walked over and picked up her train and carried it behind her and was bent over like this, carrying her train and didn't want anyone to see her and she hid behind the bride so that the bride would be the focal point of the wedding and she, and she was humble to the point where she bent over and she carried this train all the way down, all the way down to the front. And she stood there and wouldn't leave until someone told her that it was okay to put it down on the ground and then go to her seat. And it's, man, it was just like a word picture that just stuck me in the heart of what it meant to be humble, what it meant to be a servant, what it meant not to worry about your pride, your personal pride and dignity and self-worth and all the things that we struggle with in our society and to, and to serve the needs of another person. And, and Jesus said, I am gentle and I am humble in heart. I thought, man, there's something here for all of us, isn't there? I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. And, and then I began to realize that, you know, the only way that we can demonstrate, and the only way that, you know, if the Bible says we're to be conformed into the image of Christ, that God's ultimate desire for every one of us is to become more like Jesus, then what better way for us to be more like Jesus than to be as he described himself? to be gentle, and to be humble in heart. And there's only one way that can happen, and that's by being obedient to the Word of God. The obedience of a servant. The obedience of one who looks at the Word of God and says, not my will be done, God, but yours be done. I can't think of a more challenging message to start a new year than to be men and women who say today, God, in 1994... For the first time ever in my life, I want to commit a year and I want to do it day by day to do in your will and not mine. I want to live to please you this year and not please me. And I don't know what that means and I don't know what it encompasses and I'm not even sure what I'm getting myself into, but I'm going to trust you and I want to make that commitment. I want to live to please you. I want to live to serve you. I want to live to serve others and I want to stop expecting the world to serve me. Because all year long you're going to be bombarded with the opposite message of how the world is here to serve and please us. And it's not. Jesus said, I am gentle and I'm humble of heart. And what I like about what Jesus says is that he lived it, he didn't just lip it. And if you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13, and I'll give you an example 
of how he demonstrated what he was trying to teach. He said, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. I'm like that lowly servant who humbled herself to carry the train of the dress for someone that she loved and cared for and wanted to lift up and make it a special moment. Man, I mean, it just doesn't happen in our world. There are a lot of other people that were at that wedding. I'm telling you right now, there were 400 people there. There was only one person who saw the need and went out and did something about it. There was one woman who understood. Everyone else watched. And you know what? And what was really interesting about it was the indignation of all of it was the majority of people couldn't figure out even what she was doing. What is she doing? Jesus had the same situation occur in John chapter 13. And if, you, if you're there, look at verse, we'll start with verse 4. John 13, starting with verse 4. It says that Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so came to Simon Peter, and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Let me give you a little background here. In this passage, we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, the feet of his friends. And uh, on this occasion, he leaves us with some timeless principles as far as how we are to serve God and one another. And uh, to help you understand the, the uh, historical and cultural background, in the days of, of the first century, uh, there were very few, if any, paved roads. And all the roads that you traveled on were dirt roads. And in the summer, if there was no rain or limited rainfall, they were very dusty, and they were probably four to six inches of dirt. And if any of you have ever gone out on a job site or a new construction site, as I have, uh, you walk on a job, and sometimes you could sink in dust up to, you know, up to your ankles. Uh, because there just isn't water that, that's there on, on that particular site. Well, in this particular time period, that, that was true. But on the, other, on the other, other side of the coin is that if it did happen to rain, then it was just a, a, just a total mud, I mean, it was a mud bath. It was a mud hole. And the mud sometimes was very deep, and it was like picturing the, the, the wedding as, as uh, the rain started to fall after a period of time and, and the dust turned to mud. Well, what's happening here is that Jesus is at a dinner. And uh, what they would do as a service to their guests, as you walk into a house, you would have a servant who was at the door who would take care of an appropriate need, which was the feet of those who had been traveling to come to your place for dinner had gotten dirty. Whether it was dusty or whether it was muddy, they were dirty nonetheless. And so there would be a person that was there at the door who would, would note this need as you came in. They would be there, they would kneel there, and they would wash your feet. You would take off your shoes or your sandals or, or your Reeboks or whatever, and, uh, and you would lay them aside, just see if you're paying attention, and, uh, and, and then you would lay them aside, you would leave the shoes at the door or the sandals, and you would go ahead into the house to have dinner. And so as we look at this particular scene, uh, this was the culture or the custom of the day. And if you've ever lived in other parts of the country, we have friends that live in, in Seattle, and they've got mud rooms, and you're like, mud room? What's a mud room? You know, obviously giving, uh, giving it away that you have no clue about anything other than where you live locally. So they teach you that it rains here all the time. 
And uh, so we got rooms where when our kids are out playing in the rain, because they have to do that in other places of the world. They have to play in the rain and go outside, you know, if it's a little. I mean, we grew up back east. I used to laugh about it when we first moved out here. We've been here long enough that I forgot, but I'm reminded every now and then. I mean, when I grew up in Pennsylvania, I mean, if it was, you know, if the sun was shining and, and there was, you know, ice and snow on the ground, it was a great day to go play. I mean, you take a basketball out to the basketball court and the nets would be frozen and you try to dribble the ball and it just doesn't dribble real well. But on the other hand, it was a day where you can go outside. I mean, the world has to deal with this. We don't, you know. It's just another crummy day in Southern California. This is just disgusting. Um, but anyway, so it, it keeps us from relating to what everybody else has to go through. So they have a mud room in Seattle. They got rooms, you know, in other parts of the country where you can come in, you put your boots, you know. You have to wear boots and stuff and you put them in that room and then you can walk into the house. Anyway. In this particular case, in Palestine, that's not that, that they had the same type of problem. So the servant would be there washing the feet. Well, the interesting thing is, in this particular case, if a home could not afford a servant, then one of the guests who got there early would assume this responsibility. So if you got there early and you were a gracious guest, you recognize that your job None of you'd ever have to worry about it, <laughs> obviously, because you'd have to get there early. <laughs> oh, gee, well, that'll never be a problem here. But if, if you got there early, you'd ha you would assume that responsibility, and you would wash the feet of the guests who came after you. All right? You, you picturing what's going on here? Okay, now we got a problem, as we're going to see as we go through this, because not one of the disciples volunteered to wash anybody's feet. So the scene is you got this room filled with people, room filled with disciples who love God and want to serve Him. You got this room filled with disciples with proud hearts and dirty feet. And that's the scene. Now you got to understand that as they're eating, the way that it worked was that there was a, a table that would be across and they would kind of lean like this because they didn't have chairs and stuff. So you kind of lean this way, right? Now check this out. You got somebody down there leaning this way and you're all leaning this way and you're all eating. You got someone up there leaning this way. What in the world? And, and, and you, got, you got these ugly feet in your face. Now, this has been going on the whole night. They're all eating, trying to eat with dirty feet in everybody's face. If you've ever been in a locker room, you can relate to this. It's not a good scene. I don't know how they ate. Probably were a lot of leftovers. But anyway, so that's what's going on. So Jesus, the whole night, is watching this scene take place. It's interesting that every one of God's people would fight for the throne but nobody will fight for a towel. Isn't that true? Not much has changed, has it? Oh, Lord, I'll go to my death for you. I'll fight for you. I'll stand up for you. I'll be persecuted for you. But I'm not going to wash someone's feet. So Jesus just about had enough of this. And this is the scene that we see taking place. And let me just share with you some things that we need to consider because what he's doing is he's helping us to understand what it means to be a servant. Number one, these are three truths to consider. Number one, that being a servant is unannounced. Being a servant is unannounced. Look what he does. 
in verse 4, it just says this. Very quietly, Jesus rose from dinner. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment that he had on. And he took a towel and he girded himself about. That's it. He just got up and he went to take care of business. He saw a need. He saw something that needed to be done. He'd been watching it. He'd been examining it. He'd been waiting to see what was going to happen. And he realized that none of those guys were going to take care of an obvious need and that he would do it. He didn't say this. It doesn't say in verse 4. And now, gentlemen, I'm going to teach you how to be a servant. I'm going to teach you how to be a servant. Watch what I'm about to do. Notice how I take off my cloak, the outer cloak. I put on another one. I will go get a towel now, and I'll get a basin, and I'll get some water. And watch what I will do as a servant. Jesus doesn't do that. Because he was used to the Pharisees doing that. That's how they did everything. That's how we get the arrogant, hypocritical, religious type people in the world who say, watch what I am about to do. Please take notice of this. Try to learn from this because I am your example. Watch what I'm doing. And it's always public and it's always visible and it's always something that people will notice. It's never behind the scenes and it's never when you ask their wives or their children or their friends or people they conduct business with or other people that know them away from the stage. It's never those things that are done then. They never see that then. They don't see a servant's heart then. They see a public display. That was the Pharisees. That's how they did everything. If the Pharisee, one of the Pharisees would have got up to wash someone's feet, it would have been, a, it would have been major fanfare. Oh, Lord, I'm about to do something for you as your servant. Watch me now wash their feet. Jesus doesn't do that. True servanthood doesn't have to make an announcement. True servanthood sees a need and responds to the need. Jesus rose quietly and he got up and he prepared himself to take care of business. It was quiet. It was unannounced. You know, it's really interesting too because I'm sure that as he got up and he poured in verse 5, it says he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and he began to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded as he had it wrapped around him. I'm sure that if you were sitting in that room and you are one of the disciples right about now, you're feeling a little bit guilty about things, huh? Because... Have you ever seen somebody do something in your presence that you should be doing yourself and you didn't do it and now they're doing it? How do you feel? Off the hook? No? It's kind of like when you're sitting in the chair and you're watching your wife try to drag the Christmas tree out to the front yard. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. Yeah, you just feel just a little touch, just a tad guilty about this. There's something not right about this picture. And so, guys, we know, here's how you remedy it. You call your kids. Hey, Rhino. Hey, can you help your mom drag the tree outside there, would you? Yeah, that's the way you do it. No. I mean, if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. You see someone doing something you know you should do, and you start feeling a little guilty about it. So the disciples are all leaning around, looking around, and they're going, uh-oh. I think we're in trouble now. And so he comes to Peter, and he starts to wash Peter's feet. And Peter's like, no way. You're not going to wash my feet. 
Peter's feeling guilty because he's thinking, man, you know what? Maybe I should have done this. Maybe he was the first person there, and that was probably the responsibility that he should assume. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm just throwing some things out as conjecture. That could be. Maybe he just felt guilty, period. Maybe he realized with Jesus doing something that they should have been doing that at least one of them should have done it. But see, Peter had a different problem because he understood how the system worked. And the system was, well, wait a minute. You are one in authority over us. That doesn't make any sense for you to wash our feet. And if we are going to be in authority over people around us, uh-uh, this doesn't make any sense. I don't want to start a precedent here where we as leadership and people in authority are going to have to serve the needs of others. I don't want this to happen. But Jesus knew his heart. See, when Jesus said, let me wash your feet, and Peter said, no way, let me ask you a question. You think Peter met the self-description of Jesus where it said he was humble in heart? I don't think so. See, I think Jesus exposed an area of Peter's life that Peter wasn't much aware of that existed. And that leads to the second truth, and that is this. Sometimes being a servant includes receiving graciously as well as giving graciously. Some of us who are givers, it's easy to give. We talked about that several weeks ago. God wants his servants to give generously hilariously, anonymously, personally. See, that's easy sometimes for some of us. I know it is for me. I would rather be doing than having somebody do for me. I would rather give than receive because I'm proud in heart. That's the problem. And I just realized that as I was studying and putting this together. That's what keeps me from receiving from others. It's pride. I got the same problem that Peter had. I'm glad he had the problem because God helps to reveal my problem by seeing what Peter's problem was. And uh, some of us don't understand that. We can't receive graciously. We can give, all we'll give, but man, don't try to give us something in return. See, I still struggle with if you give me something, I feel like I need to give you something. If, if I receive something from you, I have to somehow receive something back because I don't want to feel like I owe somebody something because I grew up with that as a mentality. You don't owe anybody anything. If you get something, you give back. You feel like you have to reciprocate. And now I'm really getting challenged here to understand that, no, you know what? There are times where we need to receive graciously as well as give graciously. There are times where it's more humbling to say, thank you, than it is to say, thank you, now let's go get them something too. See what I mean? That, that kind of puts us on, that, that, that leaves us on the hook there, doesn't it? To just say thank you. There's a story of a gentleman that I want to share because it helps illustrate it. His name was Jim Sullivan. And he faced a similar situation to that which Peter faced. And he was a man who was heavenly involved in ministry, a man who was heavenly involved in one church meeting after another, and oftentimes much to the expense of his own family and their needs. And anyway, after a period of time, his wife, Carolyn, broke emotionally and she had to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. 
And uh, she was there for an extended period of time and he really struggled with how to deal with this and uh, these feelings of anger and resentment and all the rest of the confusion and the guilt and all of it. And so he drove home from dropping her off and checking her in and he went to get his children to take them out to dinner to explain to them what had taken place. And he began to cry, and this was his own admission. He said, not knowing how long it was going to be or whether she was ever going to come out cured, I took the children for a hamburger and talked with them endlessly. I got them ready for bed, and I continued to talk. I knew that night that I was facing a crisis in my own life that would either make me or ruin me. He says, that afternoon I had gone to a friend's house, and I had taken a fifth of whiskey of theirs home with me. After I put those kids to bed and prayed with them, my little Kathy saw me cry for the first time in her life. And she said, Dad, I've never seen you cry before. I think that night she learned some things about her dad, that I was a man, that I was human, that I was hurt, that I was alone, and that I was lonely. So as I bathed, put on some pajamas, and headed for an icebox to mix a drink, that very moment I think I acknowledged I was through with God for good, through with the Christian life I had known because I had given everything to him and had now ended up with nothing but a hurt, lonely, confused wife and a nest of problems. I was really angry, knowing once again that I had hurt Carolyn deeply. As I went to the refrigerator, the doorbell rang and an unbelievably wonderful man, Jack Johnson, was standing in the doorway. I had already prayed earlier that night and in the middle of my prayer I told God that I didn't understand. I had kept my end of the bargain, but he had done this dastardly thing to me. I didn't even know where he was or what he wanted from me any longer. I had given him my life, my blood, my family, and now he was trying to destroy me. As Jack walked into the room, he grabbed me and he hugged me tightly for what seemed like 10 or 15 minutes. I don't even remember how long it was. He hugged me so tight that with such strength of caring that my anger, bitterness, and disappointment seemed transferred from my fragile soul to his very being. He never quoted verses. He never said everything was going to be all right. He just blessed me with a short prayer, walked out the door, and with him he carried all my hostilities into the night. He says, I didn't understand it then, and I don't pretend to understand all of it now. I still don't understand what happened to my wife, but because of Jack, I was able to accept the situation. The love we received from Christians in the next few months was outstanding, overwhelmingly beautiful people. Meals were brought into our home for one solid month. People came by to make up our beds and to clean the house. I received mon money and envelopes from people with, uh, with, from unknown sources to help with medical expenses that had soared out of sight. The thing that destroys a good many of us as Christians is our inability to relate to each other in a warm, honest, compassionate sort of way. It says, even with those to whom I was close, I failed in this endeavor. I was so busy being a doing Christian boy, that certainly was me, that I'd forgotten what God had called me to be. For so long, I didn't know that a Christian was supposed to let someone love him. I thought he was always supposed to be loving somebody else. I didn't think it was necessary to let anyone love me except including Carolyn. It seems that in the context of my Christian faith, you were adequate if you could love people, but you were considered inadequate if you let them love you. And that's some of us, isn't it? it? Certainly was Peter. He couldn't receive graciously. He was a giver. He was a doer. He was going about the Lord's work, but he could not receive graciously. And so Jesus kind of rebukes him, and he says this in verse 8. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. 
And Jesus answered him, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And that's the third truth. And that's, you know, being a servant is not a sign of weakness, but of incredible strength. Jesus didn't hesitate. And to put it into our modern vernacular, what Jesus said to Peter was this, listen, buddy, if I can't wash you, then you just take a hike. Because Jesus knew his heart. And he knew that it was pride that was keeping him from allowing him to have his feet washed by Jesus. He knew that it was pride, the root of it, that was saying, I don't want, to wash, I don't want you to wash my feet because I know that what's going to happen is you're going to expect me to wash others' feet. I know where this is heading and I don't want it to go this direction. I know that if I receive from you what I receive, that I'm going to have to in like way respond to others. And Jesus said, man, I know your heart. And if you don't let me wash you, you can just take a hike. See, there's something about a servanthood that we think is, you know, mealy-wheely type of thing that we never have to confront. But let me tell you something. God's people are called as servants of God to confront others with the truth, no matter what the cost. To confront with the truth that being a servant is a sign of strength and not weakness. Jesus often confronted error with harsh words of truth. We need to accept this as a fact to preserve the truth. Peter got the message because look what he says in verse 9. Hey, uh, you know what? <laughs> you want to wash my feet? Have at it. Wash everything. Go out. You know, that's it. I'm not holding back anymore. You want to wash my feet? You can just go ahead and give me a shower if you want. I mean, you know, Peter always kind of went the, the next little mile there, didn't he? And so Jesus says, well, you know what? Let me, let me take this whole story and let me kind of uh, help you to understand how it applies to us. Because they were great. You know, most of these guys are still sitting there going, I don't have a clue what was just going on here. You know, they're, they're up at the other end of the table. I don't know. They're, they're eating dessert or something. Peter's down this end. Jesus is trying to wash his feet. They got this dialogue going on. The guys up the other end are kind of like, what in the world's going on down there? Uh, do you know what's going on? And so as Jesus, he, he gets back to the table. And uh, so Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. And so when he had washed their feet, he said, taking his garment, reclined at the table again. And he said this, do you know what I have done to you? I like that. And he says that to me and to you. Do you know what the purpose of the story is? Do you know why he did what he did? And most of us go, I'm not sure. And I say, I don't know. And the good thing is, well, let me tell you. And then we can all know. So he goes on and he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I like that. He's saying, you know, you, you said I'm the Lord, and you're right. You said I'm the teacher, you're right. You said I'm the one in authority, and you're right. You're saying that I'm the one who should have my feet washed, and that's where you're wrong. And this is what we need to understand. And he, so he goes on and he says, If I then, the Lord, the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I like that. Application. Obedience means personal involvement. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if I did this, then you do it. Then you be a servant. And you do so unannounced. 
And you do it because you see a need. And it doesn't matter who else sees it because God sees it. And he's not unjust to reward those who do what is right before him. He says, you see a need, then you meet it. You receive, you receive graciously. Don't steal the blessing of another person's life because you have pride in your heart that won't allow you to say thank you. If somebody wants to bless you and meet, you, meet a need in your life, then you allow them to do it and you lay your pride aside. And you say thank you. And you allow that person to leave your presence blessed of the fact that they could meet a need in your life. You humble yourself and say thank you. See, that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. But he's saying we need to get involved, folks. This isn't something that you learn in church, something you read in your Bible and you walk away and say, man, that was an interesting lesson. This is something that we need to apply in our life as everything that we learn in the, in the Word of God. We need to be doers and not just hearers. We need to let it infiltrate our life in every area and manifest it in our actions toward one another. We don't need more people preaching that don't do it. If I'm going to stand here and teach this, I need to make sure I assume the responsibility and I need to do the same thing. I haven't got this down yet, but I'll tell you what, I, I, I'll guarantee you this, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to do something about it. Somebody gives me something, I'll say thank you. That's hard to do. And, and I'll resist the urge of having to go out and get them something to make up for it. I know that that's a problem in my life. I need to deal with that. If I'm going to do something for someone else, I'm not going to let anybody else know about it. That's what we need to, be, we need to become. Jesus, just like him. Gentle and humble in heart. We need to do this. We need to take action. Obedience requires that we're just like Jesus in our unselfishness. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you in verse 15. I gave you this example. Do it. You saw it. You understand it. Now do it. And you know the only thing? Hey, think about this. The only thing that keeps us from doing it is disobedience. It's rebellion. It's Peter's rebellion. I saw you do it, but I'm still not going to do it. I saw her carry that train or that dress, <laughs> but I'm still not going to embarrass myself and put myself in that position. No, I hope that's not true in your heart because we haven't learned anything if it is. Obedience requires that we're just like Jesus. Man, you look at this, just like Jesus. And I'll tell you what, unselfishness never comes easy. And you know what? Let me, let me read something to you real quick as we, as we put this all together. Because you, you, sometimes you think, man, did these guys, did they really learn anything? Did they really learn anything? And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this in verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. You know what's amazing? The Spirit of God used the same word that Jesus girded himself for action, prepared himself for action to wash their feet. Peter says this, gird your minds for action. That's the same word. He used the same word that was used of Jesus preparing to wash their feet. Peter, it, I, I know that Peter was changed. I know that he learned from it because it made an impression on his life where he said, I need to gird my mind. I need to prepare for action just like Jesus prepared himself that night as he wrapped that towel around him to wash our feet. I know that's true. And in, verse, in chapter 5, he says this, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you, listen to this, 
Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Clothe yourself with humility. The man learned his lesson. And you know what's wonderful about it? Peter didn't have his act together. And as God revealed to him what was wrong in his life, he said, I will be obedient. I don't have my act together. You don't have your act together. As God reveals his truth to us, the wonderful thing about it is it doesn't disqualify us for future service. It just says, hey, I didn't understand that. Now I do. Now I'll apply it. Now I'll do what I'm told to do. And obedience all, always results in ultimate happiness. I love this. Because in verse 17 of chapter 13, he says, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Blessed are those. He says, if you know these things and you do them, you will be blessed by God. I am convinced more than, more than ever before that the reason that many of us do not have a satisfying, peaceful, joyous relationship with God is that we are not putting into action all that God is convicting us to do. We are not being obedient. We are suppressing the Spirit of God in our life as He convicts us of things that we need to stop, to do, stop doing and to start doing. And we are suppressing Him. We're suppressing the truth and we're not obedient to the Word of God. And you know what happens as a result? We do not enjoy the blessings of God. We do not enjoy the joy that is there for us to behold. Man, you know what? Jesus said, if you do these, if you're obedient, if you get involved, if you're Christ-like in your unselfishness, and if you do what I'm asking you to do, then you will have genuine joy in your life. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's not going to backfire on us. All I'm saying is that, you know what? If we do what we're told to do, if we are gentle and if we are humble in heart, then God will bless us for it. That's Jesus' description of himself. The question I have for me and you is, how close do I come? How close do you come to meeting that description? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity. What a way to start a new year. God, help us to be men and women who are gentle and humble in heart. God, help us more than ever before. Give us the strength to be obedient to your word. God, I know as I speak this morning that there are many who are disobedient in areas of their life that are playing games with you and they shouldn't deceive themselves because you're not mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap. God, for many of us, we are reaping anxiety and guilt, and frustration, resentment, bitterness, because that's what we sow. God, help us to be men and women that learn from your word that we need to be humble in heart. God, help us to be servants in a gracious, quiet manner, to receive graciously, and to thank God, thank you for the blessings that we receive from the hands of others. God, help us to be obedient servants to your word that uh, not only will others benefit from our service, but ultimately you say that we ourselves will benefit and enter into a joyous relationship with you. And we just thank you and praise you for these words in Christ's name. Amen.